Hi and welcome to This is iBrooks. My name's Tommy McIntyre and for this conversation I'm actually joined by two very, very special guests. I'm joined by Laura Fox from Club 1872. Laura, hi, how are you doing? I'm very well, Tommy. Thanks for having us. Great, thank you. And I'm also joined with uh, Dave King, who probably doesn't need any further introduction uh, from a Rangers perspective on top of that. Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tommy. I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Great. Now, uh, I will I will save you both the, the cliched question uh, of every interview uh, that starts off with asking how we're doing in a in a COVID world. Uh, and it's, I think it's fair to say that we're all finding it difficult and we hope restrictions are lifted as quickly as possible whilst uh, protecting those most vulnerable and in need. Uh, and if I just start with yourself, uh, Dave, so there's obviously a, a whole a whole history of things that we can talk about in terms of your involvement with your club. I will cycle probably straight to, to 2015 to, to get the ball rolling. There's been, I think it's fair to say, an external power struggle. Uh, yourself and your co-investors, people like George uh, uh, Gilligan and, and George Latham, etc., are invited onto the board, voted onto the board, so to speak, take control, regime change to use your own phrase there. I'm really interested from your perspective, through all the due diligence, the external wranglings, etc. What did you find was the biggest surprise behind the scenes when when you came into power, so to speak? I think the biggest surprise was the the the, the, the kind of degree um, of the kind of absolute failure of the club. Um, from a footballing point of view, and the the degradation of the facilities. I mean, I think we all kind of understood the direction. We, we knew the club had gone backwards, but the absolute level and extent, um, you know, to which the club had deteriorated, both physically, the morale um, of the staff. It really was, it, it was kind of like a graveyard, both in terms of you know the people themselves. And um, people were, I mean, I don't think there was a single smile, you know, for the first day or two for anyone, you know, when we were walking around the place there. But the, the physical facilities as well, the, the, the dirt, the filth, the grime, I mean, it was just uh, at a level of dilapidation that I, I would just never, never, ever have expected. Do you think, and Laura, I'll, I'll bring this question out to you as well immediately after Dave, but... Mm -hmm. Dave, that level of ground deterioration, the let's call it the, the degradation of the standards within, you know, basic standards within any, any club, never mind a club of Rangers history. Did you do you think that that wasn't quite known? If it's a surprise to you, for example, do you think people, even though there's been so much written and spoken about, you know, what happened previously to the club, do you think people still just had a little gap in their knowledge of just how bad things had become? Yeah, I, I really don't think that, that, that anyone did know. I mean, to some extent, you know, I could have argued that maybe with me being in South Africa and not visiting Ibrox that often, um, you know, maybe I was slightly more remote. But even people like John Gilligan, who was still going to the games, I think never realised the extent, um, you know, of that degradation. And, and it was even the extent where, even from a health and safety point of view, that there were issues about legal compliance. And, and you know, if, if you look at the work that had to go on there, I mean, the amount of money, you know, we, we knew it had a big challenge financially focusing on the team and trying to get the club. You know, at that stage, we were still in the lower division. Uh, and we, we understood the, the magnitude of the financial challenge to, to get the club to be number one in a footballing sense. But we did not understand at all that there might be the level of investment required in facilities. So, for example, 
you know, I think at this stage, I don't know what the final figure is now, but we've put in about three and a half million pounds, say, into the, the roofs, for example. Now, you know, we weren't expecting, you know, some of that work. And a lot of that work, that work was what was actually legally required. It wasn't really optional because the, you know, the, the kind of Easdale and the, the Ashley groupings just hadn't even done the basic legal requirements to maintain the facilities. It really was an absolutely shocking condition that we found them in. So, Laura, if I move that question over to your, yourself as well, you're obviously being part of the, let's say, the you know, preeminent fans fans group. Is some of what you're hearing there still a bit of a shock to you, or were there stories filtering out of the club towards you about maybe the level of degradation that had happened before regime change? Yeah, it's certainly something that I've discussed with Dave previously, and I've had numerous conversations with like Sir Stuart Robertson about it as well. Um, Stuart would maybe talk more about um, the sort of staffing infrastructure, you know, the, the personnel side of things, how that had been just gutted, I think. Um, and they were sort of rebuilding whole departments and and putting, I think, the staff that were left, the staff that was left, um, I think there was their confidence had to be rebuilt. Um, I've also discussed this with um, people who just work in and around Ibrox. I remember having a really interesting chat uh, with a lady who worked in Argyle House at reception and she she was there throughout, you know, th um, prior to regime change, regime change and afterwards. Um, and she talked about some really dark days and, you know, the sort of dread that she had of coming into work. And then that sense of relief um, after regime change and how she started to see things change and, you know, her confidence built as a member of staff. So um, I, I wasn't involved in the fans groups um, around that time. So I wasn't there to sort of see any of it firsthand. Um, but Joanne Percival, who sits on the Club 1872 board with me, she's been involved in fans groups for many years, um, over a decade and uh, she was involved in the Rangers Supporters Trust um, and, and she's spoken to me about you know the kind of her shock and um, disappointment at, at what they found when they went back in. Yeah it's, uh, it's incredibly interesting I feel as well that we're going to have to come up with some sort of shorthand of uh, after RE and before RE we would continually have to say regime change yeah um, but, but if I, I switch back to, to yourself Dave for a second there so let's say that three to three and a half million pound figure that you've mentioned there. I'm really interested, you come in, you then start to, you know, there's only so much you can do from external due diligence. I think anybody who's you know dealt with business will appreciate that. Did that level of spending that had to be plugged in immediately affect the, the business plan or what you could do in the immediate moment? I'm just thinking obviously for any business, you'll have your three, five and 10 year plans, et cetera. But was there a slight tweaking to the business model? You know, we actually really didn't have a business plan in, the, in that structure sense. I mean, I think we come in really um, with an attitude of we've got to save the club and get it back to, to, to a certain level. And that, that was both footballing and non-footballing issues. And the the surprise really wasn't so much the plan. I guess it was the additional level of funding because on the, you know, on, on the football side, we had to make certain decisions. And, and the one was... Are we going to focus everything in the short term, which is about getting the getting the team promotion and getting them back to competing for titles? Um, or were we going to, in that process, um, start to implement um, what you would think would be normal processes, normal functions within the football club that weren't going to pay off in the short term, but it would be necessary to have in two, three, four years' time? So, for example, we didn't have a single scout. I mean, Rangers Football Club, when we went in there, did not have a single scout, not even at school level, at no level, we did not have a single scout. Now, you know, one could argue that our short-term priority 
didn't have to be going out and restructuring the scouting department. It wasn't going to have any immediate benefits to us, but we made a decision that in parallel with the urgent needs to to upgrade the footballing skills that we wouldn't in parallel with that continue to invest in the, the kind of more medium and long-term resources so that, that that really wasn't a change in the plan but certainly was a change in the level of financial resources that we had to come up with to to to, to meet the short-term and the medium-term objectives it's an interesting one and I'll, again i'll ask i'll ask you both um uh, sequentially so if i ask yourself first dave though uh, and I've previously interviewed the likes of, you know, let's say Mark Warburton as well. And I'm, I'm not focusing on individuals here um, and Davy Weir and all that type of uh, scenario. But I'm interested, and I, I, if there is a criticism here, it's, it's of people like myself as well who are fans. Do you think in terms of not understanding everything that was, let's say, wrong, I think it's fair to say wrong within the club, and all the internal maybe wranglings and battles and external wranglings and battles that they had to go on, and we'll touch on that in a moment, that there was a, a disconnect between, listen, yes, you know, regime change has happened. I think I've just, I'll just stick with the full, the full word thing. Um, and there's so many fights to be had. There isn't the ability to immediately get to the place that's in Rangers fans' mind, which is silverware in the cabinet. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that... You know, so sometimes it's difficult to go back to what you felt in 2015. In fact, um, I recently saw a YouTube video clip of the first talk I gave to supporters immediately after the EGM, and it kind of just reminded me of, of, of kind of what the situation was at the time and what my emotions were as well. But, you know, at, at that time, we really were just trying to do what was necessary. But what I always felt at that point in time is that the, the supporters had really... Um, worked very, very hard and very, very diligently and, and, and made some fairly strong financial commitment, I think, to supporting us to achieve regime change. And I always felt that we wouldn't be under immediate pressure from supporters to win silverware immediately. I always felt there was a level of understanding by the supporters that uh, it, it was going to take time. But having said that, you know, it, it couldn't be an endless project. You, you couldn't keep on going back and saying, we need more time, we need more time. So it was a question of getting the balance right to say, you know, is the trajectory right? Are, are, are we doing the right things? Um, and do we think we can do them within time frames that are reasonable? I felt that we, if you look at where we are today, I think we have achieved that. But I do think that there were uh, times, say after year two and probably after year three, where I felt that, you know, we weren't getting um, the rewards for the level of work that we'd put, we'd put into it. We just weren't doing things fast enough. Uh, and it was very important that we started to turn that around. So over the kind of five, six years, I think we're where we wanted to be. Um, but I'd like to have probably taken a year off that, um, to be honest. Yeah, I think that, that year off um, comment's quite interesting as well. Laura, I appreciate you know, Dave's on the call as well. But from a fan's you know perspective, and even just an individual perspective, not a, not a Club 1872 perspective, um, did you feel or did you cycle through those feelings as well that there's a, a picture of Rangers in our mind, our collective minds as the Rangers family, which is, you know, league titles, flags, silverware, you know, getting the brasso, the brasso out come the end of the season, so to speak, um, that was maybe just a message that had to be continually reinforced? Yeah, and I think um, I think Dave and the board um, and the executive team were pretty clear with fans about that. Um, I think there was a period of adjustment as fans um, in terms of our mindset and our expectations. I think Dave is is correct in saying that 
round about the time of regime change. I don't think there was an immediate, certainly my sense wasn't that there was a, an immediate expectation um, of, of success. Um, I think we knew that there was some rebuilding to do. I think I think that later on it's, it maybe started to feel like it was taking a bit longer than we had anticipated um, and I think there were feelings of frustration and, and fans were, were worried, I think particularly before Stephen Gerrard was appointed. Um, That's a difficult period for me to comment on because as a major shareholder, Club 1872 is, is privy to, to conversations and details that can't be shared with the wider support and that's, that's really difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult things about being a Club 1872 director because you totally understand as a fan, um, we love the club and we want and we live in like a world where we have information on tap about pretty much everything you know politics the news and um, social media sort of provides that for us and, and we want the same for our club because we we love the club and we're, we're truly interested and and when things are are difficult or challenging you know I think that need becomes pretty intense so as a fan that's something that I understand and recognize but um as a club 1872 director you, you're maybe sort of in possession of some sort of some information that you can't uh, share with people um and that's one of the difficulties I think or that's one of the challenges um that club 1872 has faced, um, but I think what we would always do is remind people that it's in the shareholding that you have your um, power and influence, um, and it's how you vote the shares that, that that's important. Uh, you know, Stuart Robertson used to talk about, um, and he said this on on the record. Um, we they can't run the club like a reality TV show, and I think that's I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, but I think the club has to balance. Um, the emotion the emotions that supporters feel you know we care about the club and, and we want information and there has to be transparency but transparency doesn't mean information on tap um and i think that as a support we have learned to be patient um throughout these these challenging years but yeah it's been difficult and i think there's been periods of readjustment but i think as a support we've coped remarkably well with it yeah, I would I would absolutely agree, and uh, I agree with the uh, not running the, the club like a soap opera comment as well. From from someone who comes from a, a deep regulatory background, mm-hmm. uh, in my day job, so to speak, hearing people talk about risk and controls and sensitivity is uh, music to my music <laughs> to my ears. I have to say, it's all about risk and control. But if I switch back to yourself, then Dave, a bit more of a maybe a pointed question, which is. You know, by and large, I think we can all see the upward trajectory and we'll touch on that at the moment. I don't want to you know, spend all of our time looking back the way uh, because that's that's not beneficial. But let's say that initial cycle, that first three, four years or whatever. Um, biggest biggest misstep, something that uh, you would look back and say, mm, if I had just taken a slightly different position on that and I, I wish I could have. You know, I honestly can't think of anything that I, that I would view in that context. I mean, do I, would I like things to have turned out differently? Yes. But do I think that the the manner in which we went about things um, was inefficient or flawed? I, I don't think so. And, and a lot of it comes down to, I guess, appointment of managers. Um, you know, for, so for example, let's take Pedro. I mean, I think there was a process at that time um, we were looking to make an appointment. Um, we did a lot of work and uh, research into Pedro, looking at his background, looking at his experience, trying to figure out whether he'd, whether he'd work in Scotland. Um, but at, at that time as well, the availability of managers to Rangers was restricted. There were certain people still didn't feel at that time that the club was back to where it needed to be, maybe wanted more money to be spent than was available to them, needed to do things quickly. So, you know, we made a decision there and we appointed a manager, um, but it didn't work out. Um, could we have done it differently? 
I'm really not sure. I mean, I thought Pedro was the right guy at the time. I enjoyed him as a person. It was one of the most disappointing things for me. In fact, to, to let him go and the progress on the pitch that we needed to be doing for the level of investment. And, 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 and that, that's the challenge, Tommy, because when you're sitting at the board level, um, it, it, every time you, you look at a new manager, it tends to be almost a three-year cycle. Mm. But we couldn't keep on going to the fans and changing managers and, and, and having rolling three-year cycles. You know, we had to be making progress on an ongoing basis. And, and, and it becomes quite challenging, you know, particularly, you know, particularly in terms of the resources you give to a manager. So, yes, the biggest regret of mine was probably that we didn't make as much progress under Pedro as I really expected that we would do. Um, and the fact that we got to a point where we felt that for various for various reasons, in fact, in terms of, of, of um, what was going on with the team and, you know, probably the, 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 there certainly was a level of disunity, I think, between the management team and the players themselves. Um, and we, we, we made a decision to, to move forward and make that change. And I think that cost us, when I refer to the year, you know, I think, I think that really cost us a year of progress, but I really felt we were, we were making progress and, and, and we then ended up going backwards. So that, that was a great disappointment. But I don't know if we could have done it any differently if we could come back to that time. No, I, I very much appreciate the, the, the candle there. And it's an interesting jumping off point. And Laura, I'll be really interested in your view, let's say from an external position in a moment as well. That if I, let's say, utilise Pedro uh, here and some of that disunity that was played out in the back pages, etc., which is never a, a good thing. And Graham Murty encountered some of that as well. And decisions were made with senior coming, coming maybe to the end of their career um, players. I'm, I'm really interested, though, if we take Pedro as an, an absolute example here, were you surprised by and large, not just with Pedro, but he's a, he's a good gateway to the wider landscape in terms of the challenges, the relationship, the breakdown of that relationship and the I would almost um, flavour attacks from both the entrenched Scottish media. I mean, I remember Pedro being called up to a studio and faced off with ex-players from, from rival teams, for example, and the governing body, some of which we're still seeing from a consistency model perspective. I, I wasn't surprised by it. Um, Club 1872 actually released a statement in support of Pedro. Um, not not necessarily in fact not in terms of you know what was going on on the pitch, um, but just in terms of the treatment that he was receiving from the Scottish media, um, and that you know, it was quite unusual for Club eighteen seventy two to do anything like that. And even historically, fans groups had, I think the RST had done um, a, a campaign, a sort of we deserve, I think it's called we deserve better, um, about what was going on in the pitch, but. It, Fans groups don't don't tend to comment on that side of things. Um, so, so, but yeah, we did. We commented on what was happening with Pedro and, and the the media. It, it unfortunately didn't surprise me at all. It's it's one of the um, it's one of the issues that we have tried to tackle. We've worked closely with the club at times, and other times um, we have um, we've independently commented on on aspects of the media um, bias and. Um, just some really distasteful um, articles and, and things that we've we've come across, um, and we've had a couple of uh, Ipso wins, which is a huge amount of work for Club 1872 as volunteers. But um, but we're very proud of that work. We're very proud of uh, sort of being the supporters' voice on that on that front. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't surprised by that, and I think it's unfortunate that he experienced that. But um, but you know that is what it is. That's the way it is in Scotland, I think. <laughs> Yeah, there is a, a certain uh, a certain uh, level to that, and I, I should just point out for anybody who's not uh, familiar with it. So it's the Independent Press Standards 
organization uh, in that as well. Uh, I, I do love my acronyms, I have to say, uh, as much as possible. But Dave, if I play that question back to you as well, uh, in terms of what Laura was just speaking about there, was there a surprise to you from a, and I'll flavor it here in my words, a reticence to a resurgent Rangers, um, for, for use of better alliteration there. Were you surprised by some of the governing body or the way that the media reacted to Rangers? I can't comment on the media and you know, I think living in South Africa, I think I was removed, I guess, from what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis with the media. So it's not something I was following out here, but certainly from a from a, from a governing body and an authority point of view, yeah, I, I, I was surprised that, um, I, I really felt from Scottish football's point of view, both at the Scot Scotland national level um, in the footballing level, it was important to get our clubs back competing uh, strongly in Europe, um, which, which I think requires a strong Rangers and a strong Celtic. I mean, it's great if the other clubs are there, but they don't have the resources on an ongoing basis that we've got. And I, I really felt Scottish football at the national level, from a coefficient point of view, etc., um, lost a lot by effectively only having one team um, that was likely to win the league and was, was likely to have any reasonable chance of success in Europe. And, and I would have thought that in that sense alone, a strong Rangers would be welcomed by Scottish football. But I think there was a level at which, with Rangers being away from the main table, um, I think the game became um, kind of monosided in the sense that the one club was dominating, I think, a lot of the, 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 the kind of committees and, and, and a lot of the people who were in key, in key positions, I think, were used to his master's voice to a certain extent. And, and mm -hmm. that was a single voice. And, and it took us... It took a lot of work behind the scenes to try and get Rangers kind of back at the table and, and and getting meaningful representation in areas where you'd have thought that they'd be welcoming us with open arms, and and we found sometimes there were closed doors. Can I can I maybe just you know um, for a practical example of that in terms of those places where you would expect us to be represented or welcomed, uh, and and that wasn't the case. Well, I, I think, I'm just saying within the governing bodies, I would have thought that, um, you know, a resurgent Rangers and Rangers coming back would have been welcomed and in, in areas where we felt that um, certain decisions had to be made and were right decisions to be made, we, we, were, we were getting resistance, which we regarded as being um, more to protect the existing vested interests and to, to try certainly not facilitate Rangers getting back to the top of Scottish football. So I, I really felt that we um, we certainly weren't welcomed with open arms um, by the authorities. Yeah, I can, I can get that. I think, I think it's fair to say that the, there's still a bit of a prevalence of that in certain areas. Certainly that's the, the feeling you get from, from the outside, so to speak. So if I then start to turn my, my gaze towards the, the, the current position and, and the future as well, um, my, my final question to that area again back to yourself Dave first I suppose um, surprisingly I'm not wanting to concentrate too much on Stephen Gerrard um, in terms of in terms of this conversation but what I am interested in is lots been made out of your your initial conversations the due diligence behind the scenes of of bringing in uh, Stephen Gerrard and his perceived lack of um, experience that's tangible I think the the other elements that he brings to the table probably were less uh, easily understood by people. But in terms of your positioning of that and driving that forward with Mark Allen, etc., 
Was there or is there still a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding of one, the unifying force of personality there with Steven Gerrard across the club, the club without becoming a cult of personality? And two, slightly extending it um, a little bit, when appointing somebody like that, was there a challenge or an uplift to the expectations that the board could deliver on his behalf? I think as far as Stephen is, you know, is personally concerned, obviously there was a, a risk in appointing a manager at that level without um, the the normal experience that, that you would have. But we were looking at that stage for, for a leader. Um, and we were looking at someone who we thought could make a, an impact both on and off the park. And, you know, Stephen's contribution is, is not only been on, you know, what you're seeing in the park every week, but in terms of structure, strategy, in terms of, I think the overall ethos, work ethic, the quality, the winning mentality, I think he's brought that to a lot of different aspects of the club outside of the, the footballing side. And another um, thing that we were mindful of at that point in time was still from a resource point of view, you know, we were playing catch up with a team who had access to Champions League money on a, on a regular basis. And we were trying to do more with our resources um, and, and just really get the maximum that we could possibly get out of them. And, and, and there was a feeling that, you know, Stephen's status in the game would certainly allow us to attract players um, who might want to come to the club because it, it had been difficult at Rangers when we were in the championship and then just coming up. There were people who were saying, yeah, okay, we're like Rangers, you're a big club, but you're not where, where we need to be at the moment, you know, for us to come and be part of that. And that we felt that Stephen's credibility and status in the game might just cause people to jump our way rather than kind of say, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and look another season. And I think that worked for us very, very well. I think that Stephen has been able to attract um, a greater pool of, of players who, who, who were willing and, and remain willing to come to the club. Yeah, I, so if I turn to yourself, Laura, there, I'm interested, do you think from a, a Club eighteen seventy two membership perspective or any of the questions or that come your way from, from other fans, there's been a I hate to use the phrase, but a Stephen Gerrard effect. Yes, there's there's no doubt about that. Um we've spoken publicly before, and I believe Colin Stewart from RYDC has, has talked about this in terms of the Rangers Lotto. Um that that we have suffered at times when things are not going well on the park. And um, people cancel their, their lotto subscriptions, they cancel the Club 1872 donations because they're frustrated. Um they're not going to stop supporting Rangers, you know, and they're not going to hand back their season tickets. Um, but people get emotional about these things and, you know, you feel that you want to do something. You want to sort of let people know that you're frustrated. Um, and there was a time when people were, you know, writing to us and saying, you know, we're not happy about this, we're not happy about that. Um, in terms of the footballing side of things and the decisions that were being, make it, being made on that front, um, I can't remember the last time we got an email like that. Um, I, mean, I mean, I can't say that it stopped immediately when Stephen Gerrard was appointed. I, can't, I honestly can't remember what the timescale was, but um, I don't recall there being very many emails like that since Stephen Gerrard was appointed and certainly not, <sighs> certainly not in the last couple of years I mean it's I just don't recall the last time we we received an email like that and that's not to say that you, know, you go on social media and you can see it um you know there are decisions that we make um on the park um that you know people like to comment on uh, fan media is really good at sort of analyzing the games tactically and you know there's never a time where there's a perfect game where we can say that you know everything was great in that game but I think it's <laughs> 
I think it's a, a sort of normal response that we have now. Um, although, look, that's not to say, as I say, like we're emotional about this. So I think, you know, there was the result uh, last weekend and you know people were disappointed and you know I think a wee bit of worry started to creep in um, but title winning Rangers teams have lost games so I think we have to try and keep the heat a bit mm-hmm. um, but no I, I think there's been a massive in terms of like what, what we see at Club 1872 and the contact we have with our members yeah there's been a there's definitely been a Stephen Gerrard effect in terms of the positivity and the confidence amongst the support. Yeah and I'll, Tony, Tony, Tony could, I, could I maybe add something there as well that from you know, from the inside with the media side, I think it's you know, the, the extent to which if the media is on is offside, let's say with a manager, and I think that happened again with, with Pedro to, to, to an extent, and the media really start taking a view, and, and that's becoming difficult for the manager to manage. That does seep into the club and to the players, and it actually runs away with you, and, and it becomes very, very difficult you know, from, from the club's point of view. And whereas someone like Stephen, you know, Pedro came into a Glasgow environment, unfamiliar with it, probably thought he could handle it, but just found it far more challenging. And I'm now talking about the media specifically in terms of his relationship with the media and what the media was saying. That, that's something that was never going to be difficult for Stephen because Stephen gets that. I mean, Stephen's highs and lows in his life have all been played through the media. So the one thing that we were absolutely confident on was that Stephen would hold his own in the media and we wouldn't end up in the type of situation we had with Pedro because it does damage to the club. It doesn't stop between the media and the manager. It seeps through into the team and to other aspects of the club. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a key point there. And there's a to, to Laura's point, there's sometimes objectivity can be thin on the ground. And then to your wider point as well, once that swell of negative press um, starts to build and it can't be answered effectively. It, it's almost self-fulfilling to, to a slight extent, unless there's a massive exactly. change. Yeah, yeah, a massive change on, on the pitch. Um, so, my, my final question in, uh, in this section, so to speak, because I really want to spend some time talking about the the share issues and the work that Club 1872 are doing in terms of legacy as well. But and I I don't want to spend too much time talking about our, our you know perceived rivals or other clubs in Scotland. But just drawing a couple of things together in a thread that you've spoken about there, Dave, and the question's pointed to you to begin with, I suppose, uh, which is, you know, that reticence in some of the areas within the governing body, uh, the fact that we had to cycle through a couple of managers, get things right, you know, uh, do, you know, work on the burning platform, so to speak, behind the scenes, uh, fight some fights and, and court and all that kind of good stuff, all that history. I'm interested, when did you get a, a sense that there was from you know, the Celtic who were winning the championship, et cetera, not just at a club level, but at a, maybe a boardroom level, there was a sense of complacency creeping in. What was the, if there was a crystallising moment that made you think, oh, the door's, the door's ajar here? Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as saying that the word I would use would be complacency, but if, if I was looking at where Rangers, um, where Rangers was a couple of years ago, and, and looking at what we had to do to get back to competing with tight for titles, then obviously we're looking really at one club. That, that, that's really where we've got to get to. And, and, and if I looked at where 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 Celtic were at that point in time, um, I think they were comfortable in the sense that they were reasonably sure, in fact, almost certain, let's say, um, that they were going to win the league each year. They were certain they were going to get the Champions League money, but. It, they were really operating in a what I think wasn't a very competitive environment. And, and when I looked at when they were competing, which really was the European games, they were doing very, very poorly against far smaller clubs with far less resources when, when there was a challenge there. So 
I, I always certainly had a sense that if we once we bridged the gap and once we got into a situation we were actually competing and, and, and these players were competing for the first time that that was going to be a challenge you know for, for our opposition and I had some reservations from their point of view as to how well they would stand up to that. Yeah if, if I play that across to, to you Laura with maybe a slight, a slight tweak to it I'm sure you're engaged, obviously, with other fans, fans groups, and maybe other clubs throughout the world who have a fan, um, a fan ownership uh, base as well. And it'd be interesting to hear if, if indeed you are. But did you sense that there was um, maybe within those groups that you were talking to just a, a feeling that Celtic would be unchallenged and would just expect to win everything? Um, no, I mean I think we've always had. <laughs> A winning mentality, a winner's mentality within the Rangers support. I think there was always that expectation that, I mean, look, I think there were certain seasons where, you know, it got to a point where you think, right, okay, you know, we're not winning this title. Um, but I, I think we never went into a season with that, you know, with, with that sort of fear. I think we always went in with the winning mentality. Um, I, I think that's that's part of our DNA as Rangers supporters. Yeah, yeah, I would, uh, I would, I would like to echo that as well. So if I stick with you at the moment, Laura, as I mentioned, obviously, and I don't think there'll be many people listening to the, to the podcast um, who aren't aware of this to some extent. There, there's obviously an agreement between your, yourselves and Club eighteen seventy two and and Dave in terms of purchasing his previous share ownership. And I just wondered to stick with you at the moment. Maybe you could give us a quick, a quick background to that before we maybe get into some more detail. Yes, so we're calling it the Club 1872 Legacy Campaign um, and the idea is that we will raise funds over a period of approximately three years um, to purchase Dave's entire shareholding. The purpose of Club 1872 has always been um, to increase our shareholding to a significant level so that we can be influential um, at the football club. And the legacy campaign is is about helping Dave, I think, achieve his sort of final legacy to the club. Um, I think, you know, we don't need to go into any details. You say, you know, all Rangers fans know what Dave has done for the club. Um, but Dave's always been really clear with the support that, that he wants fan ownership. Um, he wants fan influence at the shareholder level. Um, so this, I think, will be his, his final legacy to the club um, and handing those shares over to the fans. And our role at Club 1872 is, is to raise the funds to do that. So that, that's what we're doing at the moment. Um, a part of that also, as we've um, announced recently, um, is that the club have given us uh, six months, the first half of uh, this year, um, to raise funds to put directly into the club. It's not something that we had anticipated that we would need to do this year, um, but we have the opportunity to do it. Um, and Dave has been very flexible in terms of his uh, agreement with us. So we're now aiming in the short term to, to raise £2.5 million um, to put the first tranche of funding into, to buy the, the first uh, tranche of shares and put that funding into the club in the month of March. Yeah, um, so if I, I quickly switch to your, yourself, Dave, and I don't think anybody would um, disagree that this is a great move from a fan's perspective and a fan ownership perspective. A uh, bit more of a pointed question, I suppose, to start with, which is, you know, why the why the tiering of the of the prices of the shares over the three years? Why not a standardised cost basis on a year by year basis? And that that really was to assist Club eighteen seventy two. Um, because the, you know, you've got the current share issue, which is which is 20p, and I think we wanted to make sure that there wasn't any variance from that. So I think Club 1872 really came up with a structure that would achieve the original cost, but in a way that that, that reflects the current share price of being of being 20 pence. You know, we're expecting that over the next couple of years the share issues will be far higher 
than 20p you know from the club's point of view but at the moment it is 20p so we wanted to make sure that we aligned ourselves with that yeah and if i if i jump back to yourself for a second laura as well and um you know i i fully appreciate the irony or the slight irony of this question when i'm asking it in a fan's podcast and you guys doing this reach out process for example but i think it's fair to say historically there's been there's been some uh, let's say relationship potentially transparency problems between the majority of the support in Club 1872. Uh, and I know a hell of a lot of work goes on behind the scenes and has been going on behind the scenes with, with you guys to, to bridge some of that and clarify some of the you know um, misconceptions from the, the support. But I'm just really interested how focused and how key to this offering has that been in the minds of Club 1872? Yeah, I mean, look, it's about... I suppose it's about winning over hearts and minds, but minds more than hearts, because I think people, we already love the club. Um, you know, that's not in doubt in terms of the support. Um, but I think that we we have a lot of, um, I think we have work to do in terms of um, letting people know what Club 1872 is about and how they can get involved. Um, and in terms of transparency and sharing information, um, we we do um, release regular updates uh, to our members. We do quarterly reports, and we hold regular members meetings. That's that's been very difficult, obviously, um, last year with COVID, and that's obviously continuing into this year. Um, we we're very transparent in terms of key decisions. In fact, it's mandated in our articles of association that all key decisions are taken by Club eighteen seventy two members. So, as a member led organisation, um, to participate in in those. Um, we do them via an online poll to participate in those kind of things you have to be a club 1872 member so obviously you're you're in more of a i don't want to say a privileged position but you're in a better position um, to know what's going on at club 1872 if you're already a member um, but in terms of outreach and advertising and, and reaching the wider support we are very limited um, in terms of our budget um we we receive donations from from supporters that's how you become a Club 1872 member. We take a 5%, we can take up to 5% um, admin for admin costs, um, but that's actually a very small budget if you compare it to you know, charities and the like. Uh, that is a, a, very, a relatively small uh, budget. So we have been limited in what we can do. Um, we have done things like leaflet the stadium. Um, we have volunteers who are out before, who wear out before every home match, uh, handing out leaflets. Uh, we've been at the fan zone. We've done sort of roadshows with RSCs, um, presenting to RSCs and, and trying to do sign-ups. Um, we've done sign-up events in the office. We did a sign-up event, I think maybe two actually sign-up events outside the mega store. Um, but in terms of you know radio advertising and, and getting on TV and things, we're really limited in our budget. It's a scale thing at Club 1872. The more um, the more members we have, the more shares we can buy. Equally, the more members we have, the more we can spend on advertising and things. So with a team of very dedicated uh, volunteers, we do our best, but we're always looking for support. We're always looking for opportunities um, to get out to the wider fan base. And what we say to our members on a regular basis is that word of mouth is the best advertising tool that we've got. Rangers fans talking to other Rangers fans and saying, I'm a member, this is what I get for being a member. Here are the kinds of decisions that I've been involved in taking. Um, you know, that, that's one of the ways that I think we can grow, grow the membership. But certainly communicating with the support and, and widening our outreach um, is definitely going to be key. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think anybody would disagree that, um, you know, I think those key elements of volunteers doing it for the love of the club and then, you know, not having a massively bloated administration and budget or anything like that are, are key points. And that 5% um, that's retained or up to 5% that's retained is, is probably the key figure there for people to take away uh, from that. I'll, I'll stick with you for a moment as well, Laura, before I ask Dave the, the same question. I'm really keenly interested and probably the message to the support and people who are you know, looking to donate or become legacy members, etc. that if there's further equity issues in terms of funding for the club, and I mean that as in the football club, not Club 1872, what's the, is there a concern or what's the steps that Club 1872 would take to retain their influence or is there a you know a level of dilution that's that's built into that model we have been diluted um we we can only participate to the level that we're able to do in terms of the funds that we've received uh, from supporters so in previous years um we have supported resolutions that allowed the board um to to choose who would participate and share issues and we were always invited to participate um, and there was no cap put on that so um I've talked about this before in previous podcasts and at members meetings and things about this collective responsibility. Um, I think it's very easy to look at it from the outside in and to say, oh, they've only, you know, they've only bought this amount of shares. Um, they're only at this percentage. They've been diluted. Um, I, I don't want to say that the I don't want to sound like we're, I'm trying to avoid blame for being diluted. Um, I think it's more about taking responsibility for it. Um, we, we can only participate and share issues to the level that that the support is prepared to fund Club 1872. The more people we have on board, the more people who get behind this vehicle, the more shares we can purchase. So yeah, we have been diluted and it's certainly something that can happen at Club 1872, depending on the level of support that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And just before I turn to, to Dave with that, or more pointedly to, to Dave, I think that's the, the, the point I wanted to really draw out here, that one dilution in and of itself isn't a negative, but there has to be a clear understanding with the with the support uh, that, you know, a legacy proposition of purchasing these shares from Dave, for example, is not a silver bullet in and of itself. There's an ongoing commitment that comes with being a shareholder. And so therefore, if we're going down a shareholder route quite rightly, we have to be prepared to, to you know, fund when we can and if we can. And Dave, I'm wondering what your message would be to supporters in that vein. I, I, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, for, you know, for, from the club's point of view, I mean, I think the club is fairly close to a situation where it, w it won't be coming to shoulders all the time. I and mean, I think the club should be in a situation where um, once we've kind of get back to the top um, with, with player trading and the various other parts of the business, the club really should be self-sustaining and it's where we've got to get to. And I think we're not we're not far away from that. But it is right. If there are situations where um, there are new shared issues, I think um, Club 1872 should always be striving, in my view, to keep the 25%. Because I think this should be something they're looking at as a really very as a generational issue so for example you know we talk about regime change and the importance of me working with club 1872 and, and the other supporters groups to achieve regime change um but if, if you go back to even the, the craig white transaction if if you had club 1872 at that time as a major shareholder the, the craig white transaction would never have happened um so that, that there's going to be so many situations over the years where things will happen at the club. And if, if the supporters want to be able to influence that, and if they want to have, have sufficient knowledge of what's going on in the club and to, to a certain extent, um, 
anticipate events as they're coming. They can only do that by being a major shareholder. So I really, really think that from the supporters' point of view, um, to make sure that, that what happened to our club never again happens, but also the other events that happen from time to time, I think supporters need to have a meaningful input into what's happening at the shareholding at the board level. So I, I really think the supporters should be taking advantage of getting up to the, become the major shareholder and then doing their very, very best to stay there once they get there. Yeah, absolutely. And before I before I move on to some, let's call them closing closing questions, Laura. If I come back to you uh, just on that, so you know, there's obviously an implied you know level of trust there and a weight to to not only Dave's words but his actions by you know linking in with Club 1872. And I, I appreciate you know, Dave and his team will have done their due diligence behind the scenes as well before before getting to this point. Uh, I just want to reinforce what are the the key dates. Um, that people need to be aware of when it comes to this uh, this type of transaction in terms of being able to gift uh, or donate to Club 1872? So Dave um, has given us a period, uh, we've agreed a period rather of Dave, with Dave of, of three years, um, but that that has been, we've talked about this before, but that's, that's flexible, there's some flexibility in there, so should the club require funding? Dave's been very clear that he would he would rather the, the funding went to the club, and, and we, so we certainly agree with that. I think the support has a has see, sees that very much as a priority as well. Um, so over the three-year period, you can either make a donation um, of £500, a one-off donation, and that that entitles you to a Club 1872 legacy membership. Um, you have a lifetime vote on all key decisions, um, or you can pay it over a period, uh, as I say, of three years. There are various sort of um, there are various methods of paying it, various options available on the website. Yeah, absolutely. And the details for the uh, the website uh, and how you can contact Club 1872 will be provided um, within the uh, the tweets and the YouTube channel that uh, that will be utilising to put this put this recording out as well. Uh, I would suggest that people go and give it a read and uh, then donate if they can. So, just sticking with you again, Laura, before I before I close here and appreciating again, Dave, Dave is on the call. But in terms of your outside view, um, how do you think? Dave King, for example, will be remembered by the Rangers support? Um, I think that Dave will be remembered, I don't use these words lightly, but I think as a legend, um, as a, a hero um, within the Rangers support, I think that, um, I don't want to embarrass Dave, um, but I, I see these comments on social media, I, I hear members telling us that, that that's how they feel about Dave, um, that Dave saved the club. Um, so I think that he will be remembered more than fondly. Um, I think he will be remembered as being instru instrumental um, in saving and rebuilding the club. Um, we, we very often hear from members, people email us, um, DM us on Twitter, contact us via social media um, and ask if we could fund a statue of Dave. Um, and that's not something that people contact us about, you know, very often. Um, even in terms of ex-players that were that were much loved. Um, so I think that is an indicator of how people feel about Dave and what he's done for the club. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that was a difficult question to, to answer, Laura, when, when the person's on the phone as well. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah uh, thank you very much for approaching it. It's, it's much appreciated. In terms, uh, sorry, just in terms of um, how he will be remembered, I think by Club 1872, by people who were involved in Club 1872 and, and the membership of Club 1872. Um, he has always been very fair um, and reasonable with us. Um, he's always been very welcoming um, of our input. Um, he has 
always been very transparent and open with us. There was always um, a, a very healthy relationship. There was room within that relationship for us to disagree, um, and we and we I wouldn't say that we often did, um, but that was uh, that's why I use the word healthy to describe that relationship. Um, I think Dave chaired a board that was um, prepared to take constructive criticism from the fans groups, um, and I think that I think that he will be remembered as someone who supported Club 1872 um, through a very healthy relationship. Yeah, I think all healthy relationships need a need a critical friend and a healthy tension angle to them in order to to work. Dave, I'm not going to ask you what you you believe your legacy uh, or your view, the view of the fans will, will be of you um, yourself. What I am interested in, if I let's say read the tea leaves a little bit, and I look at the club bringing on people like Julian Wolhart, Stuart Gibson, um, taking on ownership of uh, the rights to. Um, the SPFL and the, the subcontinent in India, for example. In terms of the next, let's say, decade, is, and I'm, I'm going to steal someone else's phrase here, is the pivot to Asia, um, for example, really important to the ongoing finances of the club? I, I don't know if it has to be Asia, but, but I, I think it is important that Rangers... Uh, as the club grows as a football club and, and, and there's all aspects of football and sport where I think the Rangers will, will start to become part of a bigger community outside of Scotland as one of the leading global clubs and and, and I think you can't expect you know o- over the decades um, you can't expect the kind of local Scottish supporter community um, to be able to fund you know the ambitions of the club so I think it is really important that we broaden the investor base and, and, and move also away from supporters um, you know we've really had supporters on the board and I think it's good to have supporters on the board because they're there, they're there for the right reasons but there's also complications if you've got a board that's solely made up of supporters so I really would like to think that if we look say 10 years down the road the Rangers investor base will still continue to broaden I'd like it to be more global and, and, and less Scottish. And I'd also like to see more independence uh, on the board. So someone like Julian Walhart, who's a, who's a Ranger supporter, he didn't grow up, he's not a diehard. Therefore, he has a more measured business approach, I think, to some of the decisions that we made, whereas those who are supporters tend to maybe get emotions a little bit in the way of the decision-making process. So there's going to be a tendency towards that. So I really think that is the right direction. Does it have to be Asia? No. Um, there are other markets, but certainly I'd be looking for a broader um, international investor base. Yeah, and if I stick with you, Dave, as well, so, you know, not making a, an immediate liar of myself when I said I wouldn't ask you for what you think the fans view you be uh, within the coming years. What I am interested in, though, is, you know, how key were the support of the other investors at the time of re- regime change and the fact that they should absolutely be remembered fondly as well? It's absolutely key because, um, I mean, you know, I I come in as part of a team. Um, I, I took on the role as team leader, but no more than that. But the team, um, it wouldn't have worked without the supporters. So if I go to number one, without the supporters, none of this would have worked. Um, and we were all doing this for the supporters and as supporters. And then secondly, in terms of my involvement, I would only have got involved um, if there was a commitment from others to let's say co-fund with me. So my deal was, you know, for every pound I put in, the others between them put in a pound. So it was absolutely vital to have these other investors on board. And certainly at that point in time, it was essential that these investors in fact were supporters because it really took it really took the supporters mentality to say, look, you know, because as I say, I, I always had my hands in their pockets. 
And, you know, in a normal investor situation, you, you just can't do that. But because we were supporters and because we all had one goal, you know, because it, it wasn't a complicated business plan. You know, what is your goal? What are you, everything is about becoming the number one team in Scotland. So, you know, for me, it very, very much was a, was a team, team event, supporters, myself, um, and the other co-investors. And, and um, you know, the, the level of support that I've had, you know, from, from the supporters and from my fellow investors has, has been absolutely unbelievable. I just couldn't have asked for more. Yeah, here, here with that one. As I turn to Laura, just my final question, and I'll ask the, the same question to Dave in a moment after your response. You know, given the title is tangible, we, we set you know five five wins away give or take uh, any other results with other clubs from from getting getting what we want what we we we, uh, we are used to so to speak um any final message for the Rangers squad um we've already done the keep believing thing haven't we um, <laughs> and I suppose that sums it up um I think that we have been through some really challenging times. But I think um, I think don't I think we should be proud of ourselves for the support that we've shown. We have absolutely helped rebuild the club. What's happening on the park? I don't believe would have been possible without the support that we've shown. Um, and I mean the wider support. I'm not just talking about Club 1872. Although I think Club 1872 members should be very very proud of their contribution as well. We have a small but very dedicated number, um, a sort of core base uh, of Club 1872 members. Um, and I think what I would be saying is, uh, savour this moment, like savour savour where we're at just now. Um, you, I think you said earlier in the pod, you know, it's it's not it's not great to dwell too much on the past. Um, but I think what's that expression? You know, look back at the past, past, but don't stare at it. I think it's important to look back at where we've been. Um, we absolutely have every right to enjoy where we are now. Um, and I think that we should. I think that we should have confidence in ourselves that we've helped achieve this and I think build on that confidence think think what else we can achieve as a support um, I think we've got loads loads to look forward to um, the 150th anniversary um, certainly winning 55 is going to be is going to be amazing um, and I would I would ask people to consider getting behind club 1872 because I think that in a very very what is said to be a very special year for the club um, I think that that would be a, a, a great way to celebrate what we have achieved so far what we've what we've helped the club to achieve there we go and i left that uh, that area of someone else saying 55 open um so i'm glad i'm glad you picked up on that uh laura uh, so yeah if i turn that question and tweak it ever so slightly dave um for yourself finally you know given the regime change you'd come in as the team leader of the other investors so to speak uh, alongside them the fan support on an ongoing basis via you know handing over the money straight away or via club 1872 vehicles for example the whole point being to make Rangers the preeminent club again, the champions in, in Scotland. As you now stare at the fact that that's tangibly within grasp, what's one, maybe your feelings, and two, your, your final message to the support as well? You know, Tommy, honestly, I would rather come on and talk to you about that in another couple of weeks' time. You know, my, I, I really, you know, from, from an emotional point of view, Kind of waited so long for this that I'm not even getting into the kind of victory speech mode. I really think they've got to go one game at a time, and, and I really want us to win the league. And, and, and I'm not getting. I just don't want to get ahead of that right, right now. I really want us to win it, and I'd be happy to come and talk again about what that means and how I feel about it. But right now, I don't want to give victory speeches until we've actually won the league. It's not done yet, 
and, and we've just waited too long, I think, to take it for granted. I, I really want us to get that last point and actually win it, and then I'm happy to have another conversation about that. But well, it, it's, a very emotional, it's a very emotional thing. And I, I actually watch every single game now, still, you know, desperate for every single point. What if, what if, what if, what if? And, you know, the, 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 this team is going to go down in history because this is, I think, the single most important league title the club has ever won for all the reasons that we all know. And the team is going to go down in history for one of two reasons. <laughs> and I want it to be for the right reason, which is winning the league, because the other reason is unthinkable. I think that's a really fair fair comment, actually. And, you know, we are still speaking in the hypothetical space. We'll absolutely get you back on, uh, Dave, if you can make his time. That would be great uh, once once the season's played out. Um, but you're absolutely right. And I suppose the message there is, you know, let's focus on one game at a time and let's uh, exactly. let's, let's drive the, the team forward as it, best we possibly can. Exactly. It's not one yet. And I think we need the team to know that as well. And, you know, I'm sure Stephen is doing that with the team. And in fact, I know he's doing that with the team because... You know, it's very important that they don't get caught up in this media hype that it's already done and busted. It's, it's not done till it's over. And and uh, I mean, it would be it'd be unthinkable for for us not to win it, but we haven't won it yet. We've, we've just got to keep paying attention in, in just one game at a time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a well a well made message there and a good a good stopping place. Hopefully, our next conversation will be um, ever so more positive because we'll cycle through the the week as well. I suppose it's for, for me as well to say um, thanks to both my guests. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And Dave, thank you so much for joining us as well. Yeah, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank, thanks, Laura. Thanks, Dave. Right, you've been listening to This Is iBrooks. Um, thanks so much. Bye for now. I'm proud Like an animal Something so physical